Very good morning to each of you. It is a joy to be here and spend a Sunday together. It's been a good week. I've enjoyed it. And it's another Sunday morning here to worship. We have a visitor this morning that speaks Spanish. And I was asked if I would share a few thoughts directly to her. So I will try to do a few of that through the service so don't be too shocked. Um, Queremos dar la bienvenida a la hermana aquí que nos visita, que habla español. Y no sé cuánto voy a poder dar en español durante el mensaje, pero trataré de darle algunas citas que puede ver y también unos puntos importantes. Y las dos hermanas a su par pueden también darle información. Y si tiene alguna pregunta después, favor de acercarme y podemos hablar más del asunto que estamos hablando. Queremos hacer un estudio hoy sobre 1 Corintios 11 y el pasaje que tenemos allí. So when we think of revival, we often think of concepts of faith, of inner life, and of Holy Spirit power and consecration. And that's a very important part to look at because that's where revival begins. It's in turning our hearts to the Lord afresh. That's very important to do. It's a fresh response toward Him as He outpours His grace on us. But it's also true, and I think you would find it in Scripture and in history, that real revival is always a revival of obedience, not simply the way we think, but the way we act and the way we do. El avivamiento verdadero es avivamiento de obediencia, además de, de la fe. Uh, we see that in Israel's history. God's great complaint toward Israel many times was, you are straying from the path that I laid out for you. You are living in disobedience and idolatry. And revival began when they turned their, not only their hearts back, but their commitment, their lifestyles, their obedience back to God. And so in some ways, this morning's message would seem less revival-oriented, but I feel it does have to do with reinforcing the whole of the truth that we see in Scripture, the revealed truth of God. And God's will is that many enter the kingdom. And so we must proclaim salvation, and that's important. At the same time, when we step into the kingdom, He also wants to see there an expression and a living out of God's will before the world, and so they can see what, what the kingdom of God is to be like. Near our home in Virginia is a brethren church, and I don't know all the history of the brethren people. There's various branches of the brethren people, and it's interesting there in our area in Virginia there, you visit their homes, you go into their living rooms, they might have pictures on the wall of their grandparents, and a couple of generations before, they were dressed very modestly. A lot of their ladies would have worn the headship covering, veiling. Um, but during the last decades, most of that got lost. And not only that, they also along the line, even though you read their statement of faith and practice from decades ago, and they're probably still current, but things like involvement in military, um, involvement in government, some other things like that that you, they would at one point have not done, they would, um, they would now do. And every now and then, they have this what they call a Remembrance Day, where they might dress up the way their grandparents used to dress, with modest clothing, headship veil, and come to church to remember how it used to be. Uh, but a lot of that's been lost. And their congregation, their pastor recently went to a regional conference and was shocked to see a lady minister stand up and introduce her wife to the rest of the group. And so they're faced with a decision now. Do they continue with this conference 
Do they step back and become their own independent congregation? So they're facing things like that. But the scenario they face and that they've experienced, I think, is, be, is repeated all across America and all across the world, perhaps. This, when churches move, it's not a sudden jerk. It's a slow erosion. It, it happens slowly from generation to generation, from decade to decade, this indiscernible slippage and drift. And the only way to tell where they came from is to look back at where they once were and see the various steps that were taken to get to this point. So I'd like to share this morning from 1 Corinthians 11. We could call this a refresher message on a subject that we take for granted so often. We might have occasion to explain sometimes when someone asks us questions about it. The message here, the passage here is on the woman's headship veiling. And I want you men here not to go to sleep on me because this is just as much your subject as it is the ladies in our midst. It's not just about them, it's about all of us. So before I read this passage, I'd like to reveal a couple of background truths that I think are important to think about. When we think about the importance of symbolism and obedience, this whole passage has much to do with symbolism and much to do with obedience. And both the Old Covenant and the New are filled with symbolic things. Uh, there's many commands that have to do with, with relationships with other people, how to, how to approach God, how to live a holy life. Those are direct commands for us to live out because we are God's people. But there's also things given that are symbolic of spiritual truths. In el Antiguo Testamento y también el Nuevo hay muchos símbolos que Dios da que nos ayuda a entender y comprender más las verdades espirituales que están atrás de eso. Y aquí en 1 Corintios 11 tenemos un ejemplo de esto. There's other commands that are symbolic. So in the Old Covenant especially, we have symbolism that points forward to Jesus Christ. There's so much of that in the Old Covenant. Uh, his atonement, when Moses struck the rock the first time, that was a symbol, that was a type. When Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and struck it, it was supposed to be a symbol, but he broke it because Jesus was crucified once for us. And in striking it a second time, Moses was breaking a beautiful symbolism that would have been set up there as Moses approached this life-giving rock. There's the tabernacle design. There are feasts. There are offerings. You have the Passover. The Passover both looked back and looked forward. So in the, their time in the desert, when God instituted the Passover there in Egypt, God said, every time you do it, you remember back to the time I set you free. But without them knowing it, they're also looking forward to a time when the true Savior would come and give them true freedom. They had symbolism in their dress, in their customs that represented spiritual truths. They were to wear this fringe around the bottom of their garments, something to set them apart, this border. The priests were supposed to have this special fringe, these golden bells on their dress, the pomegranates on their clothing, this gold plate that said holiness to the Lord. So everywhere they walked, it would be a continual ringing and proclamation of, of holiness, of fruitfulness, that was in there. It was a symbolism they had to wear. Now, most of the Old Testament symbolism was set aside when Christ came because he was the fulfillment of many of the symbols that were in the Old Covenant. Cuando vino Cristo, mucho del simbolismo del Antiguo Testamento fue cumplido y, y puesto a un lado. Y ya, no, ya no lo hacemos porque fue cumplido en Jesús. In the New Testament, there's far less symbolism. 
because there's a greater understanding of spiritual life. We have something that the Old Covenant did not have. We have communion. There's still symbolism. We have communion. Communion points in two directions. Jesus said, Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me and do it until I come. So we have, we're looking in both directions. We're remembering and we're looking forward. That's, that's communion. We have baptism. Baptism is a symbol of a spiritual reality transaction that's taken place in dying to myself, uh, to the world, raise, raise, being raised again in Christ. Marriage is a symbol. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5, the symbol of Christ and the church and the importance of that. That's why we, we don't want to break that. You know, many of the things that we do out of pure obedience and love are symbolic. Uh, when the offering plate gets passed on Sunday and you put in there your tithe or whatever you put in there, you're not just obeying Scripture to give, but you're also sort of symbolizing that I'm giving the 10% and recognizing that what we said last night is true. I, my, my whole self is dedicated to the Lord. When we come together to worship on a Sunday morning, we're remembering the resurrection, and we're also remembering that my whole life is a life of worship. And so these are symbolic things along with what we practice. Um, we, Israel lived with many shadows. We still have a few shadows because there's things coming that are not complete yet. We will find the full reality later. The second thing I want to say about this is there is an order in God's commands. Not all God's commands are created equal. Now, it seems almost sacrilegious to say this, and you want to be very careful in which context you would use it, to say that some commands are more important than other commands. But Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees this in Luke eleven forty-two: Woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. So they were doing very well in the secondary command. But they were falling way short in the primary command. And Jesus came to set them straight. He did not say that what they were doing was wrong, but he said there was other things to do that are more important and should have come first. And so we see in this, there's, there's, as God gives these commands, he's more concerned about some than others. They're all important. But these have an order to them. Tithing was important, but there's other things that should have come first. There were some commands that God even overlooks for a time. Uh, in the times of your ignorance, God winked at, he said, idol worship. There was a time when things like divorce were permitted in the old. He's, he gave a clause for that. But in the new, he expects better things from his people. And so we seek to live that way. And there's some things that God gives us commands in Scripture that are simply a lifelong process of growing into. So, for example, Colossians 3.5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And the first thing he mentions is fornication. Is that an important command to agree with and obey? Of course it is. But he also says in Ephesians 3.8, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, and malice. Is that, is that important? Of course it is. How many of us get it right? How many of us live free of that all week? I'm not sure. And so, we, don't we tend to give ourselves a little more room? Maybe we shouldn't, but we often do. Anger, wrath, malice. And so all of our life we're striving to crucify and to grow and to be the way Christ wants us to be in these things. We're not given license to pick and choose, but we do understand that God holds some things 
as supreme in importance, and we must keep those things first. The third thing here, principles must exist before symbolism becomes valuable. En cada símbolo que hablamos en el Nuevo Testamento, hay un símbolo y hay un principio detrás. Y tenemos que tener el principio y luego entender por qué el símbolo es valiente, vale la pena. There are some symbols that make no sense and do no good when they're not tightly connected with the principle behind it. One example is tithing. If you tithe without yieldedness to God, God will not accept what you give. Our 10% will matter very little to God if our heart is not in it. Communing and participating in communion without a relationship with God is not valuable to do. In fact, God warns us against doing that. You can practice feet washing and have a uh, something in your heart against the brotherhood and washing feet will do nothing to sanctify our life. And so these primary things come first and these symbols are only valuable when they grow out of this principle. When we take an application and divorce it from the principle, we have something that is a little bit ridiculous because it can't stand by itself. It's a little bit like if I would decide back home, I'd like to build a dock. And so I build a dock. I want to tie my canoe to a dock. But I don't even have a pond yet or a lake, so I just have a dock. What's the point of a dock without a lake? Or sort of like one of you young guys going out tomorrow and getting a marriage license. Well, it's great to have a marriage license, but if you don't even have a girlfriend yet, you may as well just wait until you do. That's what it looks like when you divorce an application from the principle. You, you get those first things first, and principles without applications fall short. Symbols separated from the principle can backfire and take on a life of its own. And here's one more thing. In spite of all I've said, there is a blessing sometimes in obeying for obedience's sake. Hay una bendición en obedecer solo por obedecer. Aunque no entendemos todo, si la Biblia lo dice, yo lo acepto y lo hago, aunque no entienda exactamente por qué. Uh, there's never a time to ignore one of the commands of God simply because I don't understand why it's there. And there's a blessing in doing that. I think all of us find times to do that, even though we don't understand the full depth of it. We, uh, we can't say, because I don't understand it and because I don't feel a personal conviction for it, therefore I don't do it. That's not sufficient to justify disobedience. And the, the reverse is also true. Just because I have a firm grasp of the principle doesn't mean that I can get by without the application, without the symbolism. Just because I live a, a yielded life on a daily basis does not mean that I don't have to give tithes and offerings because all I have is the Lord. That's not the case. Just because I enjoy daily fellowship with the Lord does not mean I get to skip church on Sunday and skip communion when it comes around. doesn't mean that at all. Just because I'm a yielded brother in the church does not mean I can skip feet washing. Uh, just because we have the principle doesn't mean we skip the application and the symbol. All God's commands are for His glory and for our good. I think we can rest assured of that. His glory, our good, even though we don't understand them fully. So are you with me so far? Do we understand these things? Is that easy enough? Wherever we come out on the question of 1 Corinthians 11... These are some of the background thoughts that I wanted to bring into it to help us see this. 
So Paul's teaching on the veil here in 1 Corinthians 11 clearly ties both the principle and the application together. We read through this, we'll find it. So I'd like to turn to that. Um, 1 Corinthians 11 is a corrective chapter. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to correct things that were not going well in the church. He's talking about two things here. The first half deals with the subject we're talking about this morning. The second half deals with communion in the church. And uh, these are things that may have been previously practiced, but maybe slipped. Things that uh, he needed to correct them on. And in verse 2, Paul says, In this I praise you, my brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep these ordinances I delivered them. That's good. Paul is commending them on some things. Verse 17, In this I praise you not. So he had various things to say, and sometimes I wonder if Paul was here what he would say about us. I praise you or I praise you not. He gave both here. Let's go ahead and take the time to read 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. Vamos a estar leyendo de 1 Corintios 11, del 1 al 16. Y después tratar de abrir esas verdades y entenderlas. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a woman indeed ought not to cover his head. I'm sorry, I read that wrong. For a man indeed not, ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. There's a lot in that passage. And I know it's caused a lot of confusion in many circles how this should be understood. Um, many people have argued against the way we apply it, partly because they say it's a cultural thing, partly because they say this was correcting a problem in Corinth, and this is a Corinthian problem. Um, it was for that era, not our era. But it seems to me that the foundation that Paul gives for this passage is too deep to have simply a local significance and a local application. That's one thing I see in this passage, this, uh, the foundation that he begins to lay. Pablo empieza a poner fundamento por la enseñanza aquí, y él vuelve hasta la creación de poner el primer fundamento por esta aplicación en 1 Corintios 11. 
And that's the one he gives first. When God created, he created a headship order. Now this is something that society cringes at. The idea that, that men and women are this way. The idea that God thinks about them this way. And so when we bring up these things, it is not acceptable to many people. But I'm simply going to try to explain the way I understand this. And if there's an argument here, it's going to have to be with Scripture, not with me, because this is simply what, what we read into this passage. But the fact is that God is a God of government. He's proven that since the beginning. And Paul seems to make very clear here, what he's teaching is not a result of the fall as much as it is a, a, a creation principle. So we would say this, this happened after man fell. Well, actually, he created things to be this way. He goes all the way back and points that out. God has an administrative arrangement that has Christ the head of every man, and by extension, all of us, men and women. And though men don't accept it, perhaps, but God is the ultimate authority. That's something God makes very clear here. A spiritual authority, moral authority, ethically, we're all responsible to answer to Him. He says then that the head of the woman is man. And so God's mandate to men, male men, some, there's some places in Scripture that the term men means all of us. The term used in this passage means men as in males. That's the gender-specific term here. God's mandate here is to take the leadership responsibility, take the initiative, take the liability that goes along with it. We are to accept that role. We accept the weight of that and carry it. God's mandate to woman, included back in Genesis 1, before the fall happened, Genesis 2, was to help out, to support, to assist in that framework. And there's many situations, I know. There's some that are unmarried, some that are uh, at home yet, some are maybe independent in some ways, but the foundational framework exists and applies, I think, across the church. The head of Christ is God. That's what it says here, and he uses that as an illustration. So the perfect role model for men and women in their relationship is that other relationship between God the Father and God the Son. If we would both look to them as our model, it would not be a hard life to live. Jesus gave up his glory, came to the earth, and basically saying, God, you be my head. I will be submissive. I will listen. I will carry out your will. I will do that here on this earth. And this is something we have to understand, that Jesus' relationship with the Father was voluntary, submissive. And this relationship between these two was not an authoritative one. It was a voluntary and intimate one. And one reason I feel that some women struggle with this concept is simply because the heads that they have to follow are not perfect. And so their idea about what an authority is is, is, is skewed because men have shown them that's the way it is. When men are authoritative primarily, they're domineering, they're forceful, that makes it very difficult for their wife, their daughter, other people around them to come in and understand that this is the way it's supposed to be. They're not modeling the father-son relationship as they should. So I feel that both men and women, husband and wives, need to look to the father and to the son to model after that the relationship that works here in this earth. Now one other thing I think we need to understand here is that God's administrative order is a temporary arrangement. I feel it's that way. Uh, Paul took pains to point out in this passage and others that in a spiritual plane, men and women are no different. We are one in Christ Jesus. 
Um, Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Matthew 22 says, in the resurrection there will be no more marriage or giving in marriage. And uh, there, as the angels of God, we're not only talking here about a, a sexual relationship, this is also referring to administrative arrangement. I think once this earth is finished, we will be there as co-equals in inheriting the grace of God. And this plan will not have to continue because this plan will be completed. But the concept that I wanted to point out in this first passage, that in God's governmental arrangement, there's room for one head, not two. Uh, I guess there's some times in nature when there's like a two-headed snake or a two-headed calf. And I wonder how these heads get along. I really wonder how they work. Now, two heads are better than one when they're thinking about something and solving a problem. But when two heads are trying to both take the lead, that's when it becomes a struggle. And when God's idea here is there should be one. And they should work together that way. The second principle that God lays or Paul lays out in this passage is a question of glory. El primer principio tuvo que ver con el gobierno que Dios impone entre los humanos. Y la, la intención de él de tener una cabeza, no dos, cuando llega, hablamos de liderazgo. El segundo principio es una, una duda de gloria. La gloria reflejada de Dios. The second question, we see it in verse 7 and 4 to 7. There's a symbol here, and maybe we should just look at that again. It's speaking here of men praying and prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoring his head, and uh, dishonoring her head when she has it uncovered. I think we see that. In verse 7 especially, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. If we can dig into that, I think we can understand a little bit the second principle being reflected in this passage. So when God made man in his image, he almost took the concept of man and divided him into two parts. The male part and the female part. And you see that sort of reflected. He called their name Adam, it says in chapter 3, I think. And by calling their name Adam, it's almost like he said Mr. Adam and Mrs. Adam. And together they formed the expression of God's will for humanity. That was their goal. God's principle. There were two sides of the human experience. And sometimes we come down hard on the female side because that's part of what this passage deals with. But it feels to me that it's together that they symbolize the glory of God. It's when they're together in this concept and both fulfilling their role that they symbolize the glory of God. So in a sense, both are made in God's image. We reflect that. There's, I think, some parts of God's character that are reflected more strongly in our women than our men. Some parts are reflected more strongly in men than women. And together we form the whole. Man was given a primary charge. He's supposed to take the leadership. He is answerable. He is supposed to take dominion over the earth, care for it, oversee it. And every day, we as men are supposed to do that in our environment. So we need to remember that. We go out to our jobs or go out in our communities we represent the glory of God. We're made in His image. We must take that with us and take that responsibility to us. We bear His image and we're supposed to remember that. And Paul says that as we do that, it's our job to do it and approach God uncovered. He, he says that 
It's not to his glory to approach God covered. So this was not the Jewish custom. In fact, this is one point that would stand against a, a Jewish custom or a temporary uh, cultural thing because Jews would have their head covered. I think they still do, coming into God's presence. They worship that way. But we as Christians have boldness to enter through the blood of Christ. Tertullian wrote, we pray bareheaded because we blush not. So we come into God's presence with uncovered heads because we are confident. We represent Him. He wants us to do that. And that's part of the package that we're seeing here. So man's unveiled head is a symbol of the unveiled glory of God. We don't cover that up. It symbolizes a deep desire that we have that He be glorified, not us. To Him be the glory. That's what we're saying. Not mine. When a man would cover himself with a religious covering, the symbol he would be portraying would be, I'm covering the glory of God. Maybe we do that sometimes in practice, but this is the symbolism we're talking about. Let's, let's uncover God's glory. Let it shine out. So, man's role and woman's role can be separated in a sense to define them, but the human experience is shared. And so this symbolism completes itself when it comes together. Uh, together, they represent this important aspect of letting God's glory shine. What is man's basic problem, do you think, when it comes to glorifying God? So often it's my glory or His glory. So often it's my reputation or God's. So often it's my priorities are His. So that's the struggle we face. And together we must represent His uncovered glory. Now why cover her and not him? And verse 7, there's the key. Uh, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. And that's why these two sides work together. Man uncovered because that's how God's glory should be. The woman covered because that's how man's glory ought to be. That's the symbolism I find there. There's a spiritual concept here that God is glorified when I'm humble. Uh, God expresses Himself through the lowliness. So when I can be humble and uh, penitent and not seeking my own glory, that's when God shines the brightest in my life. John the Baptist knew it. John the Baptist said, I must decrease and He must increase. Uh, Herod didn't know that. When the people said, this is the voice of a God, not a man, and he accepted that glory, uh, worms ate him up. And that was not a happy ending for Herod. God said, I am the Lord, and my glory will I not give to another. So when man's glory is out of the way and covered, that's when God's glory can shine. I think that's the, there's many practical ways to live that out, but that's the symbolism we find expressed in this passage. And so when a woman decides that I'm going to obey the practical things laid out here and says, I will cover my head, she's making a powerful statement. She is saying, as the final touch in God's creation... You, you recognize who you are, you ladies. You could say, I am beauty, I am desire, I am the glory of the pair. That was God's intent here. Yet as together we choose to glorify another, not ourselves. And so in, in covering my head, your head, I'm saying I represent the covering our glory so that God's glory can shine. Can we understand it that way? 
the woman being the glory of the man, the woman's long hair being her glory, and decided to cover that up in deference to the glory of God. That's what we see in this passage. That's what a daughter of God would like to do in spirit, practice, glorify God by her life. And so do we as men. So there's a third principle here in verse 10. Hay un tercer principio en versículo 10 que tiene que ver con autoridad espiritual. Y quiero hablar un poquito de eso. It says in verse 10 that she ought to have power on her head because of the angels. Now this verse has confused people. Power on her head, what does that mean? Because of the angels, what does that mean? But the way this verse is structured seems to link it back to the previous concepts that we've just talked about. Uh, for this cause, ought a woman to have power on her head. And whatever this verse means, it's because of what came before. Because of this creation order, I believe, and because of who should be covered and who should not, um, a woman should have something on her head. Now, the first thought would be, as we read this verse in English, that wearing something like this would turn a woman into a spiritual powerhouse. The demons would fear her. She would be a spiritual warrior in a prayer veiling, and that she would be somehow superwoman because of this. But if you look at this closely, this thing that she ought to have on her head is a choice. When you ought to do something, that doesn't mean it's going to happen automatically. It's something you ought to choose to do. It's a choice to make. And so, different translations make it a little bit different. Um, a sign of authority on their head. Or a token of authority. And there's two words used for power. Here we have the word power in verse 10. In the New Testament, the word power, when it relates to God and what He does, is dunamis. It's this explosive miracle-working power that he can do things with. That's what Jesus did, his mighty works. But the word that's often used when it relates to us is the word exousia. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it has to do more with authority. That we can operate because we come under someone else's authority, we can carry that authority onto what we are to do. It's delegated power. It's privilege. It's freedom. It's, it's influence. And so verse 10 is saying she should have authority on her head, exousia on her head, because of the angels. Now, when we talk of authority, authority cuts both ways. Uh, as I come under it, I can wield it. When I go out from under it, I lose it. That's just the way authority works. If you think of the centurion that, called, that Jesus came to him, and where the centurion said, I also am a man under authority. I can tell my soldiers, go and do this, and they do it. In other words, because I am an authority, I have authority. Because I listen, I can command. That's what the centurion said. A foreign diplomat overseas in another country can represent the home country and their interests and their goals. And as long as they stay under that that authority, they can also operate with authority and speak with authority where they are. As long as they are under it, they have its full backing. So the veil itself, I don't feel, is a magic power. It is not a supernatural wand. But coupled with obedience and a yielded life, it becomes a powerful symbol of authority that one is both under it and wields it 
in our Christian life. Because of the angels. That's the other phrase that sometimes gets complicated to think through. There are some bizarre explanations for that concept. Uh, some say that, well, angels were tempted to sin with women. Some said, well, this is because of the church leaders. I think there are some cultural practices of men going to search for wives for the Jewish men, and so by having a veil, it would somehow help with that. Um, different explanations for that. There's a few reasons I feel this phrase might exist, and there might be more that I don't understand. One is simply this. Because of the angels' own reverence and worship of God, uh, it's for this. Sometimes I wonder if the angels join us in our worship. You think they do? We gather together to worship. Who knows who else is here? <laughs> We're all worshiping the same Lord. They stand in awe. They stand in wonder at God. We have a small least glimpse and part in that. The angels are sent to minister to those that are heirs of salvation. As I really wonder if part of this has to do with their sense of awe and reverence at God reflected here in our group as well. Um, angels covered their face as they worship. That was in Isaiah 6. Angels, I believe, understand how authority works because they're under authority. They understand it. They wield it. They're ministering spirits sent for our good. And I think angels, under submission and reverence to God, recognize authority when they see it. And they recognize obedience and submission when they see it. And that's one reason. that It might send a message. It might be a symbol that they relate to. And the other thing I think is very true, God uses the church to demonstrate something to principalities and powers in heavenly places. I think that's in Ephesians 3.10. Uh, to the intent that now into the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So God lets the angels look in on what happens here to send them a message. And by watching us, they see the wisdom of God. I believe that when the word angel is used in Scripture, it refers to both the good and the fallen. Uh, there's various times in Scripture it refers to the rebellious ones as well as to the godly ones, the holy ones. God created angels to be in submission. Many were not. God created humans to serve Him. Many did not. And so in a sense... God is demonstrating through our actions, including this principle we're speaking of, God is demonstrating that He receives through the church what He has not found anywhere else. He didn't get it through all the angels, didn't get it through all the humanity, but here we find us giving back to God what He wanted since the beginning. Worship, obedience, submission, order. That's what He wanted. I think, I think that's partly why Satan hates it so much because of what it represents to him. Submission, honor, obedience, worship to God. I think symbolism is important in heavenly places as well as earthly places. And it's true that, that principles come before symbolism. It's also true that symbolism is important as part of our obedience. Uh, when the children of Israel were told to paint blood on their doorposts, what did that blood what was that blood? That was simply a symbol. It was an act of obedience, but it was a symbol. You see it being played out later in salvation, Christ's blood. But if someone would have said, uh, I don't want blood on my door, I'll just paint it red. 
Then it becomes a symbol of a symbol of something else. And that was not God's intent. Symbolism is important. Uh, the church is under constant observation, and both good and evil notice the symbolism we, we hold up. Did we get that? The core principle is that through this dual coming together in man's uncovered head and woman's covered head, we are saying something about what we stand for, about God's glory, about his creative principles, about God's desire to use us to send a message to the angels, to the demons, to the world around us. We're saying something important about who we are in Christ. These are principal things that are in the foundation of what we, we believe. And I believe that's the reason Satan desires to destroy both the symbolism and the principle behind it. Both are in his crosshairs. So that's the principle. Now let's talk about the application a little bit. Uh, it's interesting to me that while Paul spells out the principle and its application, he, goes, he stops short of detailing how it ought to be. Queremos volver y dejar de hablar de los principios detrás de esta uh, enseñanza y hablar de unas aplicaciones prácticas uh, que la iglesia debe pensar. There is a word here that's only used two times in Scripture and you find it in verse 6 and verse 7. Uh, Catacolupto, I guess it is, something like that in Greek. It comes from two words, basically meaning covered. Uh, only place this is used... Uh, there's two concepts here, but together they have to do with covering fully. And we could look those up and find the definition of both. But to cover wholly, to hide, it's a unique word, not used anywhere else, but it's not hard to understand. Now, Scripture is very deliberate. I think sometimes we need to learn where Scripture start, stops and why it stops where it stops. It's not emotional. It does not uh, include unnecessary details. It says what it says on purpose. It probably leaves out what it leaves out on purpose. And in this passage, we found some foundational principles, but it stops short of specifying exactly how this should look. Why was that? So when God gave the instructions for the tabernacle, he was very specific. How big, how tall, what color, what material, what shape, all these things were specifically written in there. And I think he was speaking to a specific group in a highly symbolic building. But this concept of veil must be applicable to all cultures, all times, all places. Therefore, it must have in it some ability to adjust to the needs of the people. I think that's also written into this concept. It needs to be practical. It's interesting to look at historic application evidence of this that still doesn't give us a pattern. There's pictures in the catacombs when the Christians were hiding from the Romans down underground. There's pictures of caps. There's pictures of cloths, of veils, different things. Get up in the Middle Ages. The people there used to use just a wrap around their head, you know, sort of wrapping it up. In the Industrial Revolution, this was several hundred years ago, they went back to a cap style or a veil style. In the 1800s, women began using hats instead of uh, something symbolic. They used hats to cover their heads. And then it wasn't until the last couple of decades or last century that the church actually began to argue against using this as a symbol uh, in this way. 
But from the time of Christ until fairly recent in history at least, this was a recurring applicational and uh, practice thing in, in, in history. Um, fairly universal. Now, this is where it gets sensitive in some people's minds. What should be done about the application of this? It's, it's important for us to realize where the principle stops, where the application stops, and the details begin. And we need to make decisions there. But I do think that if we agree that this passage has to do with the church age and places and times where people would name the name of Christ, then it does bring up some practical questions. And I would suggest that the practical choices that we have to make in regards to a woman's headship veiling include four simple things. We have to decide about size and about color and about material and about pattern. If you get those figured out, I don't know what else there is to decide. Those are four things that cover it, pretty much. Um, some feel that this should be an individual choice, that everybody should wear sort of what they feel led to. Some feel it should be a church choice. But regardless, somebody makes the choice on these four things. Those four things somebody will make the choice on if you're going to do it at all. So we should make it with the understanding of what the Scriptures say, where the Scriptures stop, and go from there. What about the question of size? Is that alluded to at all in Scripture? Well, verse 6 simply says, let her be covered. Does size matter? Well, I think it does to the degree that it says, let her be covered. That's what it says here. Um, so here's a, a debate. Here's a question. What is the symbol we're talking about? Are we talking about the piece of cloth on the head? Or are we talking about the covered head? As we look at this passage, it seems to me that it's the covered head that is the symbol of man's covered glory. Not the piece of cloth in itself, but the covered head. We'll talk about that a little more in a bit. If that is a symbol of God's governmental order, then the covering of the head itself is a literal covering. It's not a symbolic covering as in red paint instead of blood. This is something that is the symbol. And so we keep it as the symbol. And so I think since the long hair is the woman's glory and she is the man's glory, at least the veil should be adequate to cover that part. So the question of size ties simply to the question of intent. Is it doing its job? Are we doing it in such a way that, that seems to live up to what this teaches? This is where a wise congregation might set a benchmark and say, we feel that this does the job and this doesn't do the job, so therefore we'll try to do what does the job and together agree to do that. But that is this, this debate around that. What is the symbolism? Does it lie in the piece of cloth? Does it lie in the covered head? Um, I think it has a little bit to do with both, but in the covered head, that's verse 5, uh, praying with an uncovered head dis dishonors the head. Our tendency is to symbolize the symbol. We already mentioned that. But we need to talk about the veil itself a little bit. In verse 10, if the word power has to do with authority, and as some translations would put it, a symbol of authority on her head, then what should that be like? Should it be just anything, or should it be just something recognizable as this, to complete this symbolism? Can it be a baseball cap? Can it be a beanie? Can it be a hat? Can it be a red bandana? What should it be to do this? It all would cover it, and so in that part, we would be fulfilling the command. But 
not everyone that wears a hat is doing it for this reason. So there's a symbolism involved that we do it for this purpose. Therefore, we're going beyond cultural convenience and we mean something by what we do. Uh, we don't do this to fit in with culture as much as to stand out as God's people. That's part of what we're trying to do here. Let's, let's flip this around. I don't want to confuse things, but if we would decide that a covering is anything that covers the head that a woman is okay to wear, would it be fair to say that a, a, a man should wear nothing, no hat, no beanie, no baseball cap or anything, because if anything covering a woman's head is symbolic in its spiritual significance, then the reverse should also be true. So if you understand that little comparison, we might should say that the woman should wear something that's specifically noticeable as something of spiritual significance. The second consideration, what should the material be? This is about practical application. Scripture does not speak to that. It simply alludes to that when it says let her be covered. Some cover better than others. Um, in the early church, they were concerned about this. Hippolytus died in AD 236, wrote about it. He simply wrote, and let all the women have their heads covered with an opaque cloth not with a veil of thin linen, for this is not a true covering. So even back in 236 AD, they were discussing what material would be a good material to use. We haven't stopped discussing that yet, have we? That's a discussion we have to keep talking about. What about color? What about style? Here, Scripture is mostly silent. The first part of that word, catacalupto, has to do with hanging down. Therefore, some would say that means a hanging veiling. I think that's uh, a good application. I don't think it's the only way, but it would make sense. Um, we might ask other questions to lead us to a point. Uh, what color, what style best represents what this means? That's the question we could ask. We might consider cultural associations. We might consider spiritual associations. In Central America, some used to say, well, black is the color of witches, so we don't want to be associated with witches. Then others would say, well, white is what the nuns use, so we don't want to be confused with them either. It looks funny to have a Mennonite woman with a white veil walking around the child. And people ask funny questions. Um, but those are things to think about, I guess. Others would say white represents purity and holiness. They would do that. So many questions, and you have to discuss that and decide what works. It's just not taught here. It's not, it doesn't say the other question I think is wise to ask is what allows for practicality and consistency in our use? Uh, some churches have preferred one style for church and allowed other styles at home or for travel. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it, to me, would maybe send a message that it's okay to have two standards, what we do in private, what we do in front of everybody else. Um, it's, it's easier probably just to adopt a style that works all the time. But I'd like to say this about this whole thing. To you ladies that are here this morning, and to you men. But the kind of veil you're wearing this morning is a result of a decision-making process. You're wearing what you're wearing because somebody decided the style, somebody decided the size, and the, and the color, and the whatever. Either you did or the congregation did. But that's not the only thing it represents. It also represents the culmination of a direction and a momentum that's been going on in your life. So we have back in our congregation at home a family that came from Baptist background 
a dear family. We really appreciate them being there. But there's one thing they struggle to accept. What about the covering? And so they, they struggle with that for years and finally agree that, yes, this is a biblical teaching they want to apply. And result of much prayer, much struggle, much submission and humility, they decided to start wearing this. And they did. They started wearing the cap style covering. And that's what they still wear today. And the choices that brought them to that point are defined by good things, defined by obedience, a fear of God, a desire to do their best, a desire to submit to the church they're with, humility. And there's a series of choices that brought you to where you are this morning with what we've, you're wearing, what we have decided to wear. And I wish I could say that every woman with a veil on is a result of her obedience, her fear, her humility. But sometimes, some people wear this thing as the end result of an opposite kind of process. It's not a symbol of obedience and fear and humility and submission one to another, but it's one that flaunts self-governance and disregard for what others think and personal pride in what they wear. And it's ironic to take something that has built into it a symbolism of humility and submission and make it a symbol of the opposite of what it represents. That's a sad end result when a person goes down a path that way and does something like that. So what God sees this morning is not simply our literal adherence, but the decision-making process that got, us to, that got us where we are. And that's something just to think about as a church and as an individual as we do that. I want to quickly summarize a couple of things. This statement of symbolism of the veiled head of the woman is a man's statement as well as a woman's. We are saying together, as a church, as a family, as a couple, we are saying that my glory is covered as I represent God in this earth. So we as men are not ashamed to walk beside a wife, a daughter, a mom, who is veiled because we, it's together that we represent what God designed. This is a woman's statement. I cover my head because I'm coming under authority. God's plan is that there be one head, not two. I'm not fighting for another person's position or administrative role. I'm not usurping another person's place. And together, this is a symbol of what makes God's kingdom work. This is the opposite of what caused the fall in the first place. When Satan fell, it was pride and rebellion. The symbolism of this passage is humility and submission. It's the opposite. It's a hard step for some women to come to this grips with this because to, to conceal and to cover what other people display and primp as beautiful and attractive, it's her beauty, it's her glory, it's her appeal, it's her ability to influence men. It's, it's a lot built into that glory of the woman. It's a hard step to take to cover that up. But I think the veiled head strikes at both the heart of pride and rebellion in all of our lives. It's a blow to the self-life. It really is. And I recognize that, the step that you all take to do that. And it's an honor to share that symbolism with you. And we all should feel that way. I know this can be a divisive issue, but we shouldn't let it be. The point is humility, unity, submission, these, these things that are central and in, 
inseparable from the Christian life. That's what this means. To divorce this symbol from the attitude which it pretends to display would be ironic. And so it would be wrong to let this thing split churches, uh, cause divisions and dissensions. We need to agree where we can. We need to uh, submit where we can and do this together. And I would like to just finish by saying this. And this might shock you when I say it. But the woman's veiling is not the most important teaching in Scripture. It's not. It symbolizes the very deep things that we hold, the deep teachings in Scripture, the proper worship of God. So we need to agree on these things, move on to other things. Let's never keep the symbol as we lose the principle. Let's make sure the principle remains and let the symbol flow out of that. But Satan's strategy always has been to unravel both the principle and the application. In the world, he's done that very well, unraveled many reminders of God. I think he's made many inroads in the church and destroying some of these symbolic reminders of the important things in the Christian life. I think we have an opportunity in our age and generation, as so many churches, so many people around us lose this, Instead of compromising, we should exalt the principles behind it. We should exalt it, live it freely, not be ashamed of it because of what it means and what it stands for. I think if we are all about the glory of God, this practice will always have a place in our expression of what it means to be God's children. God bless you this morning. I'm going to ask we bow our heads for prayer, and then let's ask Danny, or Gerald, I guess, to come up and close, close the service and announcements. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to understand your will and to grasp deeply these things that are at the heart of the Christian walk and how you would like us to live this out in its symbolism and in its reality and its truth. Bless this congregation. Thank you for the beautiful things displayed here. Help us to always walk in knowledge and obedience to what you've shared and expressed in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.